The scripture reading today is from the Gospel of John, verses 31 through 38. The Gospel of John, chapter 4, verse 31 through 38. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say, There are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Yesterday, Kimberly's uh, 96-year-old grandmother went to be with the Lord. and She was such a uh, woman of faith, and I just want to pray for a second and give thanks to God for her. And then after that, I will pray for the message. Let's pray. Our God and Father, I thank you for Phyllis Brown. I thank you for the heritage of a woman whose mother prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and who passed that heritage on to her. I thank you for the heritage that Kim and I have been privileged to receive directly from Grandma. I thank you for the years and decades that she spent praying for us. Father, you know that it's no exaggeration to say that if it was not for her, Kim and I would probably not know each other and we would not be in ministry together. And so we thank you, Father, for the great heritage that you have given to Kimberly and to me and to our family. We thank you for a woman who lived 96 years of her life with her eyes fixed on Christ. We thank you for a woman who was focused and who was faithful. We thank you for a woman who was joyful to the very last moment to go be in the presence of the one who had been so faithful to her. Oh, Father, I want to die with the joy that Grandma had in her face. And so I praise you for that, Father. I praise you for the times that Kim got to spend with her at the very end, praying together, and in a sense, like Jacob, Grandma blessing Kimberly. Oh God, how we thank you for a life well lived. And I pray that her example this morning would be a great honor to you, Father. And I pray that you would let her know that I am devoting this message to her. Oh Lord, may we learn from a woman so faithful for so many years that... that, uh, It's better to live for the glory of your name. It's better to live for the things of the kingdom of God than for the things of this earth. Thank you for her. And now, Father, I pray that as we turn our attention to the word of God, I pray that you would bless us and keep us and make your face to shine upon us. Oh, God, I pray that you would speak. I pray that you would open up the heavens, oh, God. I pray that you would open up our minds, that you would open up our hearts and allow us to receive the true food that comes from heaven. In Jesus' name, I give you my thanks because I know that you will act now for the good of your people and the glory of your name. Amen. I want to begin this morning by asking you a question. It might sound simple, but it's a serious question. Namely, is there anything in this life that you love more than food, that you want more than food, that you think about more than food? 
Now, some people are obsessed with food, and for one reason or another, it's pretty much all that they can think about. For other people, like my lovely wife, she finds the need to eat irritating because she'd rather just keep going with whatever she's doing. But no matter what, if you're irritated or obsessed with food, no matter what, we're all going to eat every single day of our lives because if we don't eat, we're going to die. Can I get an amen? Food is a very important part of our lives. And the question for every single one of us still remains, is there anything in this life that we want more than we want food, that we need more than we need food? Is there anything in this life that so powerfully captures our attention, so powerfully captures our affections that sometimes we forget to eat or we actually choose not to eat? After Jesus had cleansed the temple in Jerusalem and ministered to many people during the feast of the Passover, he led his disciples out to the countryside where they were baptizing and making more and more disciples. At some point along the way, the Pharisees heard about what he was doing, and when Jesus learned of that, he decided to hightail it out of that area and go from Judea north up into Galilee to avoid confrontation with the Pharisees. The Lord was neither afraid of the Pharisees nor was he eager to avoid difficulty in life, but he knew that his time to suffer at the hands of his people had not yet come, and so he thought it best to leave that area. As they headed out, Jesus decided to take the most efficient route from Judea to Galilee, which, for better or worse, led right through the heart of Samaria. About halfway into that three-day journey, they came upon a town called Sychar, and since Jesus and his disciples were hungry and thirsty, he sent them into town to get food, and he decided to walk down the road a little bit farther to Jacob's well, where he sat and where he rested, and where he waited in faith that his father would bring somebody to draw water out for him. It was not likely that anybody would come to draw water for him. It was noontime. And in that culture, women generally went out in the morning or in the evening to draw water. And so he sat there by faith and in the sure hope that his father would meet all of his needs. Not long uh, after he sat down, he lifted up his eyes and what did he see? But a Samaritan woman walking right toward him with a huge thing of water on her back in order to draw water. And in her, the Lord saw the kindness and provision of his father. With gratefulness in his heart and I bet with a beaming joy on his face, he asked her, to get him a cup of water. But that, that request led them into a conversation about worship and about greater things of life, a conversation that went so deep so fast that they completely forgot about the water, the actual water. In the course of that conversation, Jesus revealed to the woman that she had been married five times and that she was now with a man who was not her husband. Jesus recounted her life history. He exposed her public shame and he left her feeling vulnerable and amazed and curious. As their conversation progressed, Jesus revealed to this Samaritan woman, this woman who in her town and in her culture would have been very shamed, he revealed to her that he was the Messiah, the promised deliverer of the people of God. And as I told you a couple weeks ago, this is really amazing because Before his trial, this is the only time in his life that Jesus directly revealed himself as the Messiah of God. And isn't it just amazing that God is so gracious to do that to a Samaritan of either gender, to a woman, and to an adulteress and a divorcee. Oh, praise be to God that Jesus came full of grace and truth. Amen? Praise be to God that he has a heart for broken people just like us. Praise be to God that Jesus revealed to this woman the reality of her life. He was not going to let her hide. In love, he had to say, this is who you really are. This is what your life is about. 
And now that your shame has been exposed, let me pour a grace upon you that you will never forget, that will shape not only your life on earth, but will shape all of your eternity. Beloved, it was amazing that he said to her, of all people, I am the Messiah of God. We can only imagine what she thought about what he said because as soon as he had said it, the disciples came back onto the scene and the woman decided to go back into town and tell her people what had, been trans- what had just transpired. She had a poor reputation in her city and surely she did not have many friends. But when she spoke of Jesus and when she asked them to come out and see Jesus, they decided in mass to go out and see this one who was making such astonishing claims and teaching such great things. As for the disciples, they were left wondering why Jesus was speaking to a woman. And John doesn't say it directly, but I'm sure they were also speaking, why is, or they were also thinking, why is he speaking with a Samaritan of either gender? This was absolutely forbidden among Jews. They just didn't do it, especially if you were a rabbi or a teacher, and surely they were perplexed, but they feared him. And so they dared not ask him what what he was doing or what he wanted or why he was speaking with her. Instead, they focused on the task at hand. They had been sent into town to secure food, and they did that, and now they wanted Jesus to eat. It seems, however, that Jesus was resistant because you'll notice there, it said they had to urge him, come on, Rabbi, eat, eat. He was resistant, and it's a little curious why he was resistant. He sent them into town to get food, and now they bring it, and he doesn't seem to want to eat. They had been walking together for the last day and a half. All of them were hungry. All of them were thirsty, and it would have been a grace for them to eat and drink together. But instead, Jesus looked at his disciples. You'll see in verse 32, and he said to them, I have food to eat that you don't know about. Now, they were confused about this. We should have compassion on them because I think I would have been confused myself. So they began to say, did somebody slip him some food that we didn't know about? Did he have somebody else come out here and meet him? There's nowhere out in this area to get any food. So how did this work? How did he get this other food? They had no idea what he was talking about. But do you see how, what a masterful teacher Jesus is? Because in just putting it that way, in just saying I have food that you don't know about, he got them curious, he got them thinking, he got them wondering, what the heck's he talking about? And now they're in, they're interested. Now they're ready to listen. And so the Lord says to them, he says as plainly as he can in verse 34, he said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That's my food, that's what my life is about. It was no sin, beloved, for Jesus to be hungry. It was no sin for him to be thirsty. He had been walking through rough terrain for a very long time. Any of us would have been hungry and thirsty, and he was a a real man when he came here to be a man. There was no sin for him to feel these things and to want food and to want drink. But for Jesus, there was and there is a food that's more important than physical food, and that is the will and work of his Father. And so let me press into this by asking and answering three questions. First of all, what what is food? Well, on the one hand, food is necessary nourishment for life, and I say necessary because if we stop eating, we will die. You can live on water for so long, but if you just drink water, you're eventually going to die. We need food. God designed us to need certain nutrients in order to function, and he decided to deliver those nutrients to us through food and drink so that it's a necessary nourishment for our life. On the other hand, food is a gracious gift from God because it's a means of pleasure in this life. It's not for nothing that some people get addicted to food. There's real God-given pleasure in food. In addition to supplying necessary nutrients, food arouses all of our senses. 
It arouses sight and hearing and smell and taste. And especially if you live in India, it even involves touch because they eat with their hands. Even very wealthy, sophisticated people in India eat with their hand, their right hand in particular. And they'll make an eloquent argument about how that amplifies their enjoyment of food. But even for those of us who use utensils, the, the sense of touch is still there. Food is designed by God to stimulate all of our senses for our pleasure and for his glory. And what a glory it is to him. Because he could have done this in a different way. He's God. He could have made a nutrient tree where these little pills grow and you just eat something that has no taste and no pleasure and boom, you get all the nutrients you need. Or he's God, he could have designed a completely different system, right? He could have designed it so that just breathing air, you got all the nutrients you needed. God is gracious, beloved. Have eyes to see. He's gracious to us to give us food not only for necessary pleasure or necessary nutrition, but also for pleasure. And I think if we step back from this world of manufactured foods that we live in, we would be amazed to see and to realize that this earth is filled with the very food that our bodies need. Isn't that amazing? I remember... This was like 12, 13 years ago now. I had my painting business in those days and I was on my morning or afternoon break, I don't remember which, but I had an orange with me that day and I took the orange out of my lunch pail and just for whatever reason, I don't know what I had been reading or listening to or whatever, but for whatever reason, I was in a particularly worshipful mood and when I saw that orange, God opened my eyes to see things I had never seen before and it became a worship experience for me. I immediately noticed just the artistic beauty of the sphere that this thing was. Not exactly perfect, but pretty darn close. The, The color just amazed me, and I thought about, this could have been other colors that would have been strange. Could have been bright pink or bright green or some weird thing, but it's orange and it's actually beautiful. Which, by the way, time out, little parentheses, isn't it strange to you that we call an orange by its color? They do this in Spanish too. We don't call a banana a yellow. Why don't we call an orange an orange? I don't know why. But it is what it is. And I personally find that particular kind of orange pleasurable. It's stimulating to the eyes and it blows my mind. Then there's a protective covering around it. Isn't that amazing? Almost like somebody designed it, right? Protective covering around the thing. I peeled it apart that day and I just noticed God just gave me eyes to see the intricate design. Every piece of it, like like it was put together by a master candy maker, is divided into bite-sized portions. Isn't that amazing? Attached to a subtle core, attached to one another, perfectly divided, easily to take apart, and oh, when you pop it in your mouth, what joy. Liquid, tastiness, healthy sugars, healthy fiber, the texture of the orange. Beloved, it is a glory to God that this earth is filled not just with one, but with countless oranges and other types of fruit and other types of vegetables. God created fruit for his glory in the nourishment and enjoyment of our souls. Do you see? Do you have eyes to see the beautiful, wise, incredibly intelligent thing that God did? The earth is filled with such things, and oh, oh, what a glory to God that is. And another piece to the puzzle here is that he created us with the ability to receive this consciously, to know that it came from God, and to render thanks to God for it. He received us with the ability to enjoy an orange and to know that we're enjoying an orange. Cows, for example, are not like us. Some of you want to say amen right now. We're not like cows. 
You've passed by many cows in your lifetime as you've driven from here to there. I promise you, you've never heard a cow say to another cow, wow, isn't this grass amazing? It tastes so good. I praise God that he put us out here in this field. I wouldn't rather be anywhere else in my life. I love that I can just enjoy the outdoors. I love that I can eat this grass. And then I get to make milk for other people. I get to be a blessing to others. Wow, is God good or what? No cow has ever said anything like that. Cows exist to the glory of God, but they're not conscious of the fact. You see that the Lord made us to be worshipers, beloved? Don't take this for granted. He gave us the ability of of all the taste and touch and everything we need to enjoy food to its fullness and to give God glory for this. This is no small thing. It is no accident. God did this as a glorious display of himself and as a gift to us. Food is necessary nourishment and it is a gracious gift from God. In itself, food is not sinful and I just wanna be as clear as I can With what Jesus was saying here, he was not criticizing food. He was not. In fact, it's the very goodness of food that makes his point all the stronger. Do you see that? If Jesus was saying, I deny myself bad things in order to do the will of my Father, well, amen, that would be a good thing and that would be obvious. But when he says, I deny myself great things that God has given for his glory and my joy because there's something even greater, even more important to me, well then, there's a there's a point that we ought to really ponder. There's a point that's strong and one that Jesus wants us to understand. Question number two, why then does Jesus compare food to the will and to the work of God? What's the connection here? Well, as I pondered this over the last couple of weeks, I came to realize that the will and the work of God are the necessary nourishment for our souls. We need this more than we need anything else. Has it ever occurred to you that God does not just command what is good for you, but he commands what is absolutely best for you? In this case, our Father actually does know best, and he only commands what is best. He commands of us what is absolutely most nourishing for us at a spiritual level as well as at a physical level. He guides us into eternal things. He guides us into places where we can make sense of life, where we can bear fruit in life, where we can feel like our lives matter and that we're taking up air and breathing oxygen for a purpose. God only commands of us what's absolutely best for us. Please hear the truth. Doing the will of God is the greatest nourishment for our souls. Second of all though, the will and work of God are the ultimate enjoyment of our souls. You will never meet a happier person than someone who is fully submitted to God. You will never meet a happier person than that, I promise you. This doesn't mean that walking in God's will is easy because it's not, not always at least. It wasn't exactly suffering when God commanded me to marry this beautiful woman here and spend my life with her, that was not suffering. But we've suffered many things together, I'll tell you that. Walking in God's will is not always easy. Walking in God's will means that we're gonna have to face difficulty and sacrifice and suffering. And for some people, like some of our brothers and sisters in India right now who are being persecuted by radical Hindus, even as we speak, some of them are gonna have to sacrifice their very earthly lives. Doing the will of God is not always easy, but beloved, it is best. It is absolutely best. I remember right now, I'm just remembering reading the story of Polycarp who was killed by being set on fire for his faith. He was now an old man. 
but he used that opportunity while they were killing them, he used that opportunity to preach the gospel to the Roman soldiers who had been sent to carry out that task. And the story goes that if they wouldn't have been killed for failing to carry out the task, they would have stopped because they were so moved by the faith of this man. He died in joy even as he was being tortured to death. Now unless you have mental problems, you have to figure out how to explain that. Beloved, he did not have mental problems. He had a faith that was strong. He had eyes that were fixed on God. He was right in the center of the will of God. And though he had to suffer for just a moment, believe me, his joy lasted for all eternity. The will and work of God is the absolute joy of the human soul. When we live according to our eternal purpose, we gain eternal joy, even if it's hard along the way. And the truth of the matter is that the only reason we fail to see this is because of the remaining sin and brokenness and compromise that lies within us. It's because our sin fogs our vision so that we cannot see the goodness of God. But beloved, when we come to him and let him shower his grace over us, just like he showered his grace over that Samaritan woman, he helps us to see that his will and ways are better than anything. His will and ways are better than food. Indeed, I think that for Jesus, his view of physical food was that it was a gift given so that we could do the will of God. And it's not that food was bad, but if he had to choose between the two things, that was an easy choice. He was gonna choose the will of his Father every time. Question number three, why then does Jesus say, the will of him who sent me, rather than the will of God? or rather than the will of my Father. Why does it matter that Jesus is sent? How does that play into all of this? And I think that the answer is pretty simple. When you're sent, it means that you're under the authority of the one who sent you, and as a man, Jesus Christ was fully and gladly and eternally underneath the will of his, the, uh, the authority of his Father. He was hungry, and like I said, there was nothing wrong with him being hungry. Who would not have been hungry in that situation? He was thirsty. There was nothing sinful about him being thirsty. Which one of us would not have been thirsty in that situation? There was food available. There was drink available. It would not have been a sin for Jesus to partake of those things, but his father had a different plan, and Jesus was absolutely committed to that plan. Jesus' heart was to get from one place to another and get there pretty much as fast as he can. But along the way, the father had another agenda. The father said, make a right turn here. I want you to do something a little unusual. I want you to send the disciples into the town to get food, and then when they bring the food to you, refuse to eat it. Interesting, huh? I'm gonna send you somebody to draw water out for you, but I'm gonna ask you to not actually take and drink any of that water. I'm gonna use this whole setup to show that men does not live by bread and water alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. I'm gonna teach something, I'm gonna show something that's gonna be emblazed into the memories of the people for a very long time. Indeed, there is something in life, beloved, that's more important than food. And whether we realize it or not, it is true. And I think God's aim in this room today is to persuade us that it's true. The will and work of God is better than food, it's more satisfying than food, and it is greater than food. Now. Every farmer knows that when the time comes, their lives have to be fully devoted to harvesting their crops. At harvest time, it's important for farmers to eat, but often they will deny themselves food in order to get the job done because that's just the way it has to be. Ripe crops have a limited time span, right? You can't just harvest whenever you want to harvest. You have to harvest when the harvest is ready. And when the harvest is ready, you gotta get to work. You have to be absolutely focused. And this is why Jesus says in verse 35, he brings up the saying to his disciples, there are yet four months and then comes the harvest. 
So the way I hear that is I think he's saying that even in the fleshly realm, people know that when harvest time comes, they have to be unusually focused. When harvest time comes, they have to give their everything to reap what they have sown for their own good and for the good of those that they plan to feed. And with this in mind, Jesus then urges his disciples and tells them to lift up their eyes and see that in the spiritual realm, the harvest is ready. And not only is it ready, but the harvest is white for harvest. Now, I don't know much of anything about wheat, so I had to Google this one. The commentators weren't super helpful because it turns out they know a lot about theology, not a lot about wheat either. But Google's an awesome thing, sometimes. And what I learned is that white wheat means it's distressed. And it's not quite dead, but you better pick it right now or it's going to be gone. So white wheat means urgent harvesting. That's what it means. The, wheat, the fields are white to harvest. There's distress. There's difficulty. It's not too late, but the action has to happen right now. And Jesus wanted his disciples to know, he wants us to know in this room right now, that there is urgency to the spiritual harvest that lies before us. The heavy lifting is on the Father's shoulders. We do not need to bear burdens that are not ours to bear. But our Father, our Savior, wants us to know that our fields, even in this city, are white to harvest. The spiritual harvest back then was not four months off. It was right now. And the spiritual harvest in our midst right now is not four months off. It's today. The one who was sent to reap, namely Jesus, said that he was already weeping, reaping, he was already receiving wages, he was already gathering fruit for eternal life. The disciples ought to have known this because they were just baptizing people out in the Judean wilderness, but now here in Samaria. Jesus wanted them to learn this lesson in new ways that would arrest their attention and shape their lives really for the rest of their lives. Indeed, there's something in life, beloved, that is more important than food, much more important than food. And Jesus was bound and determined to help his disciples see that, to feel it in their hearts, and to release them into the harvest. Notice in verse 36 that Jesus is careful to connect his ministry of reaping the harvest to the ministry of sowing seeds that belong to others before him. I think he has in mind Abraham, Moses, David, and the prophets. I think he's talking about people who sowed the seeds of the will and ways of God centuries and centuries before, and those seeds were gestating inside of his people, and now the time had come, and he came to reap the harvest and fulfill every single promise. He came to bring to pass what the Father had promised would come to pass. This is why he says in verse 37, one sows and another reaps. Now we know that it was Jesus working in Abraham and others to sow those seeds, but as a man, Jesus came to be the reaper and not to be the sower. And not only had Jesus come to reap, but please notice in verse 38 that he had come to send. Now this gets to our lives too. Jesus had not only come to save, he had also come to thrust the saved into the fields that were white for harvest so that others might also be saved. And as it was for him, so it was for them, because he sent them to reap that which, for which they did not labor. He sent them to be reapers of fields that others had sown, that others had watered, that others had cared for. He sent them to harvest souls that others had prepared for the harvest so that the sower and the reaper could have a common joy. Now, as I was meditating on that earlier this week, I was reminded of Deuteronomy 6. So let me just read this for you. This is Deuteronomy 6, 10 through 12. The Lord said to Moses when he's about to bring the people of Israel into the promised land, he says, 
And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to you with great and good cities, note, that you did not build, and houses full of good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Oh, how wise Jesus was to say in verse 38, others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Man, we really gotta hear that. We gotta receive that into our hearts. There are people in this world who reap the harvest and then they boast in themselves. They brag about their faith, they brag about their innovation, they brag about their success, they brag about the size of their ministry. But the truth before God is that they are beholden to those who have gone before them. They are the beneficiaries of people who have sown seeds and watered those seeds through sacrifice and through suffering over many years and even decades of time. In the kingdom of God, there is no hierarchy between the one who sows and waters and the one who reaps the harvest. In the kingdom of God, there is no difference in status between the sower and between the reaper. Rather, in the kingdom of God, the sower and the reaper are one in Christ and they enjoy a common joy in Christ forever and ever and ever. There are a couple of our TCT churches that are reaching people well and baptizing folks. I just saw something on Facebook this morning where there's a baptism at one of our other churches and I praise God for that. If they baptize 1,000 and we baptize 10, we rejoice together because we're one body in Christ. There is no hierarchy between sowers and reapers, but we're all one in the Lord. And the Lord himself was trying to teach his disciples about things that are better than food, a joy that is better than food. Come, help reap the harvest and enter into an eternal joy. As for the disciples, their time of, uh, 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 with Jesus was not one of sowing. It was not one of watering and waiting. Rather, it was a time of reaping, and the time to get busy was right now. And John doesn't tell us exactly how they responded to him. We don't really know. He just sort of cuts the teaching off at verse 38 there. But we know from the long term that this teaching really impacted their lives. And I know that in at least two ways. First of all, at the end of John, you remember he said that Jesus said and did all kinds of things that he did not include in the gospel. He said it would take too many books, to, to they would fill the earth. So the things that did make it into the gospel of John are very serious. These are sort of the, the highlights of the highlights of the highlights. So I promise you that this teaching stuck out to the disciples and it shaped their way of life. There's something more important than food in life. There's something more enjoyable than food in life. And the other way I know they really got this is because all except the Apostle John, all the other apostles died a death of persecution. They all valued Jesus Christ not only over food, but they valued his will and his work over their very earthly lives. They were willing to die in order to have Jesus Christ. So I know that they got this lesson and beloved, we would be wise to ponder it as well. We would be wise to carefully think about this story, to carefully think about the value of the will and ways of God and how it's better than food. We would be wise to think about our daily lives and the things that we are valuing in our lives, the things we are giving ourselves to in our lives, to see, to test our heart and see, is the will and way of God, is the will and the, the work of God more important to me than food. We would be wise to let our master, our savior, our gracious teacher teach us. As Jesus was lovingly teaching his close friends, 
The Samaritan woman and her fellow town, told her fellow townspeople about what Jesus had said and done. John tells us that before they even came out to see Jesus, they had already believed in him, and I don't know in detail what that means. I don't think they had an exhaustive knowledge of him, but it doesn't really take an exhaustive knowledge of a person to at least come to a basic belief in them, and I think that whatever this means, they did have some kind of genuine experience that when she bore her testimony, they put their faith in him, and then they went out to meet him. They went out in mass. Probably not every single person in that town, but I would assume all the prominent people in that town went out to meet him. And John doesn't tell us what they talked about. He just tells us that they persuaded Jesus to stay in their city. And it just amazes me that while Jesus is sitting here trying to plead with his disciples and say, listen, there's a field white to harvest. This harvest is just ready to harvest right now. Even while he's teaching, they, they look up on the horizon and here come a pack of people just coming out to him, eager to hear from the Lord Jesus. He was demonstrating what he was teaching right, right there in the whole physical uh, details of what was happening, almost as if God was in control of the teaching and the circumstances at once. When the crowd arrived at the well, as I said, they persuaded Jesus to stay with them. They were living in a hospitality culture, but the time of day was really a little too early for most travelers to want to stop for the night, but Jesus had an agenda, and his agenda was not to do his will, it was to do his Father's will. And so he forgot about getting to Galilee quickly, and he decided to follow his Father. He followed his Father's voice. He was sensitive to the movement of the Holy Spirit in his life, and he went into that town, and he taught them, and he probably ate and drank with them. He spent a couple of days with them. We don't know what he said. We don't know exactly what he did. All we know is that after a couple of days, they believed, and I believe that they believed in him strongly. Look at verse 42. They ended up saying to the woman that went out to them, they said, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for now we have heard ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. I don't have time to go into it, but that's odd that they would use that strong of a saying. Two days is plenty of time for Jesus to teach them deep stuff and powerful stuff. And so I think that they meant what they said. They might not have had a full understanding, but they believed that he was the savior of the world and praise be to God. Beloved, these are Samaritans. These are like the most unlikely people that you would think that Jesus would win to himself so soon in his ministry. Oh, how I would love to know what life was like in that village after Jesus went back to Galilee, but we'll never know. What we do know is this. After Jesus' resurrection, he commanded his disciples to go not only to Judea, but also to Samaria to preach the gospel. And it really hit me hard this week that when the disciples went to Samaria to preach the gospel, Jesus had already given them a head start because at least one village already believed. At least one village was already given to him. And after the resurrection and all the understanding that was given to the apostles by the Holy Spirit, I can only imagine that the gospel took off like wildfire among the Samaritan people. And for this, we ought to give great thanks and praise to God. This is all owing to Jesus who was willing to be distracted by his Father, beloved. He had a mission to get to Galilee, but the Father said, hold up, I got something for you to do here for a couple of days. And the Lord gladly said, yes, Father, I will do that. After two days... The Lord did go back up to Galilee. He taught his disciples that in his own hometown, a prophet would really not be honored, but he was willing to go back there because there was a harvest to be field, uh, a field to be harvested as well, which we'll talk about more in the next message. Jesus actually risked a lot when he went back home. 
And you'll see there in verses 43 to 45 that for the moment his people received him well. I don't think this means that they believed in him, but I think it means that they warmly welcomed him. They saw what he had done in Jerusalem and they were glad to have him back home. Uh, Their hearts would not always remain warm to him, but for now they warmly welcomed him. And as I said, we'll press more into that next week. Beloved, the details of our lives are different than the details of the disciples' lives. But for them and for us, the issue is just the same. And it's this, in the practical daily things of life, do we have a heart to discern God's will and to follow in his ways until we accomplish his work? In the practical daily things of life, are we willing to be distracted by God? Now I know for those of us who work, we, you have to go to work and you can't just divert for two days without getting fired, right? The details of our lives are different than the details of their lives, but the dynamic remains the same. Are you open to your father saying, hey, got a left turn for you to make here? Are you open to your father saying, I got a job for you to do here while you're at the bank or while you're at Cub Foods or while you're at Caribou Coffee? Are you open? Is your heart free? Is your food the will and work of God? And would you prefer that over actual food? Would you skip lunch someday because the Lord brings somebody into your life and you just need the time to invest in them rather than in yourself? Are you valuing the will and the work of your father over all things? I want to read for you again the fighter verse, and then I will pray. It seems so appropriate to what we've talked about today. Luke writes, fear not, little flock, fear not. It is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Know that your Father is for you. He's disposed towards you. He wants to bless you beyond what you can imagine. So then, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Let loose of the things of this earth. You don't need them. Provide yourselves with money bags that don't grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for the humility of your heart. We praise you, Lord Jesus, for valuing your Father's will and your Father's work above all things. We praise you for telling the truth and displaying such grace to a Samaritan woman by Jacob's well. We thank you for speaking into the lives of her people. We thank you for leading many of them to a place of faith in you. We thank you for clearly and patiently teaching your disciples and through your teaching to them, we thank you for teaching us here this morning as well. We thank you for revealing to them and to us that the fields are white to harvest and we thank you for calling us into that labor. And now, Father, we pray for eyes to see and we pray for passion for the work that lies before us and we pray for power so that when we preach, some will come to you. Oh, Father, please give us the privilege, even this very day, of reaping the fields that are white to harvest. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you have said and done and we thank you for what you will say and do. In your great and gracious name we pray, amen.